Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Hello, um, I am Cosima B. Concordia, and I am a Leatherdyke fag and writer based in Portland, Oregon. Hi, and I am a pervy academic based in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to Drunk Church. <laughs> yeah, so what are we talking about today, Aurora? We're talking about hatred of sex and perturbation, which whenever I read it, my brain autocorrects it to like masturbation for some reason. Um. I mean, I think that's fair. I think that's not (laughs) the way it should be. To give an introduction, we are going to be talking about Oliver Davis and Tim Dean's hatred of sex today. And we're going to be using that as a kind of jumping off point to talk about the failures of queer theory in talking about sex. And then that will also extrapolate later into conversations around attachment theory and trauma theory, and also just why sex is such a slippery little concept to talk about. Like, what is it about that? I'm really excited to dive into the trauma (laughs) aspect of all of this. I'm also like really interested in looking at these issues in like pop psychology that we're going to address when we talk about attachment theory. I'm curious about what kind of response we're going to get to going after things that have become cottage industries. So self-help out of this notion of attachment theory and then the empire of trauma that we're living in now. Yeah. Well, like Hatred of Sex, to give some context, it's in a um, series published by University of Nebraska Press that's called Provocations. So it's specifically things that are, you know, going opposed to these like long held dogmas. And I found out about this book because first I was introduced to Avgi Sakitapolo's work and her forthcoming book, Beyond Consent, which I think we're definitely going to do some work on. But then through that, she quotes Tim Dean a lot. And Tim Dean, I think, got most famous for his work on the bareback sex subculture, like during the AIDS epidemic and looking at AIDS as like turning it from a sign of like despair and death to a sign of like life affirmation and you know like what that kind of meant and so it's it's a very radical like very very incredible book that we're definitely going to be coming back to when we uh, talk about cruising i love the reading list that we've created for ourselves i know i know it's just (laughs) it's just continually expanding what a what a incredible list we have with all of that on the horizon, this is the most recent book by Tim Dean, and then I haven't read any of Oliver Davis's other work. I picked this up knowing very little about, relatively little about psychoanalysis, and I think I've continually gotten more and more interested in in these kind of returns to psychoanalysis as a form and how it manages to address a lot of things that I think other types of theories have really kind of like washed their hands of. And 
I know that there's a lot of good and worthwhile critiques of Freud that I know that uh, I'll be introducing. Yeah, yeah, that that I am sure Aurora will be bringing to the table, and but that I also think that um, that the authors that we're going to be covering, like, very much do confront those critiques, but also are trying to return to the things that Freud introduced that still have a radical potential in thinking about contemporary issues like the issue of sex. I'm the one who read this first and then recommended it to Aurora. I know that you have a lot more complicated feelings about the text than I do, and that's also because you have a lot more engagement with some of the originary texts that they're talking about. So yeah, you should start us off. I loved this book insofar as it lingers in the messiness. Like It's not trying to give in a comfortable overarching theory of what sex is, but it is giving a history of how we've talked about sex in academia and how the way that we talk about sex affects the way that we understand ourselves. And it's troubling that while pulling from resources from figures such as Freud, of course, like that's really the keystone (laughs) of this text. And then he figures in queer theory like Gil Rubin and critiquing this figure in in trauma theory, Judith Herman, whose book Trauma and Recovery is like a core text. So to quote, by sex, we refer not to some mythical substrate of gender, but to the conflicted pleasures of specifically human bodies. And I think we can trouble that notion of human. I'm thinking of our conversation about cyborgs that we had last week. When it comes to pleasure, sex is relatively autonomous of gender, whereas Foucault famously counterposed bodies and pleasures to sex, as it serves the historical development of sexuality, we aim to reconfigure these terms by suggesting how pleasures are more complex than the acknowledged. Thus for us, sex betokens something different from what Foucault means by the term that is a highly complex relationship that all human beings have with their bodies' capacities for intense, even excessive pleasure. It is the underestimated difficulty of that relationship to one's own pleasure that prompts us to speak in terms of a distinct hatred of sex, Sex represents not only a potential object of intellectual inquiry, but also something with which each of us has a uniquely intimate and often conflicted relationship. Unlike other subject matters, no academic research on sex is necessary in order for one to have strong convictions about it. For some audiences, any extensive discussion of sex, regardless of the claims or conclusions, qualifies as a provocation in itself. What follows, um, or I guess what we're opening up then, is why conceptually and historically this is the case and we're opening up with our reading of this book so you you know actually just begin by like beginning to think about like why it's just so difficult for us to begin (laughs) to talk about why we hate sex so much yeah well i think the most interesting thing about hatred of sex is that it starts out with a claim that everyone hates sex, that we as a society hate sex. So it's not just saying that like, oh, you know, the Puritans hate sex. It's not saying just the squares and the repressed people hate sex. It's saying no, everyone across the board hates sex. Our society hates sex. And that includes leftist ideology. That includes queer theory. That includes just like basically every facet of society. And that sex is something that we don't like to face head on and that we want to subsume into things that are more easy to talk about. So the claim Mm -hmm. of hatred of sex, I think, can 
be seen as kind of like the psychoanalytic parallel to how Bataille talks about the erotic, right? Where eroticism is to desire, to want, is to want something like outside of the self is fundamentally the death drive. And so is something that can bring up a sense of overcoming a violation. Like it's taking the thing that is the self and then it is going outside of the self. That is what desire and drive for the other is. And that's the thing that gives us this most profound meaning that is through like sex and love and the religious impulses. But it's also a deeply horrifying thing that can open us that is like this extreme vulnerability that opens us, us up to the potentiality for incredible harm. And so here, Oliver Davis and Tim Dean, they don't utilize Bataille for their arguments, but they're taking a psychoanalytic position about what is it about the nature of sex that makes it so hard to think. And that's, again, they come to the same basic conclusion that it's because sex is something that overcomes. It is something that takes the ego, that is this like stable thing that has like stable desires. And it fundamentally is about overcoming them. So it can be seen as a destruction of the self. It can disorient our sense of self, our sense of goals, our sense of like a stable life. So in unpacking this project, which has unfolded into so many different tangents for us, I know, and I thought it would be helpful for us to think about hate. So what hate does in their project, like politically and philosophically, so why it's such a key concept and what they borrow from Rancière, if I'm pronouncing that. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> you know. Correctly. Ran sicker. A. Ran sicker A. <laughs> Hate motivates the project, and that's because there's something that's ordering and disordering about hatred and about how we conceptualize sex. That it gets under our skin in the way that it does, that it causes masses to disseminate and then like coagulate. <laughs> Can you go into that a little bit more as it relates to um, hatred of democracy and like Rancière's concept of that? Yeah. So <laughs> this goes all the way back to the demos and ancient Greek. So hatred of democracy, the dangers of democracy, the fact that it is a rabble of people who are not fit to govern themselves, yet who necessarily like for the people, by the people, like must be self-sovereign is integral to democracy itself. It's the key aspect. It's something that makes it what it is. So they say hatred of democracy is integral to democracy because the term itself was in ancient Greece originally used as an insult by those who saw the unnameable government of the multitude, the ruin of any legitimate order. In this sense, within the Western political tradition, there's always been this suspicion desire can be something that is fundamentally destructive. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to square that with especially a liberal society. Oh my God. This is like, yeah, I'm really entering my slut phase. I'm so happy for myself. <laughs> I'm so happy for you too, Aurora. It's really nice. I feel like this is right when I'm like exiting my slut phase. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm in my my ball and chain with two mean partners 
phase. But I think you're experiencing your slut phase in, in different ways because I think that you are still successfully doing lots of slutty things with your body. That's true. I mean, I'm, yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm still open to, to, you know, like playing with people just in the context of like my partners. So I guess that's fair. I may be like gang banged at a, at a dyke party or something as long as it's overseen by a dog. (laughs) So I guess that's pretty slutty. (laughs) It's just not, it's just not quite the same as like, you know, um, hooking up with individuals like on a on a one-on-one basis you know like i'm i'm done with that part of my uh my phase <laughs> okay <laughs> gotta get back to real <laughs> oh god well, this actually connects back to the text because while i was reading it i'm just like shit like we're gonna have to think about how they mobilize hatred we're gonna have to do a critique of democracy but critiques of democracy backfire so quickly it's such a slippery slope into the masses are bad and they like coagulate into like these like really scary hateful mobs like that's really terrible like the people can't be trusted to make decisions for themselves but then (laughs) that sounds the same on the right and the left and it just becomes like really scary really quickly but that's the exact point of of hatred of sex with hatred of democracy it's that even though we have a hatred of sex even though we have a hatred of democracy that the structure of democracy is like built towards like Mm -hmm. a hatred of democracy that we still have to like find pleasure in democracy and still defend democracy because to not defend the pleasure of democracy is to let ourselves open ourselves up to fascism and to you know and to like hatred of Mm -hmm. the other hatred of the thing outside of ourselves which is the very thing like we need to look at how democracy does often produce a hatred of the other but at the same time defend democracy nonetheless and continue to work towards that project and pleasures and complication and mess therein Mm -hmm. i was also thinking about the failure of the western metaphors or the kind of history that we tell ourselves. so even like starting with ancient greece and socrates hated democracy because he was so concerned with the rabble and he was so concerned about like our inability to make decisions for ourselves and what it would mean to have the right kind of philosopher king to be sort of above everyone else and it's even more complicated in works like the laws like it's like really really scary it's like the antithesis of democracy because everything is just so set and neat and organized the metaphor that i think is the failure is the right versus the left as though it is just a single spectrum and that comes from the i want to say the french revolution where they had people that were pro monarchy were on the right And then the people that were pro-revolution were on the left in the assembly room. So that's where we have this metaphor of right and left. And that just is just so utterly useless (laughs) because it's just not a spectrum. It just isn't like you're not on one side or the other or it just falls apart immediately when you're thinking about (laughs) the fact that there's like fascism on both sides. And then you fall into this like stupid like horseshoe theories. Once it hits a certain point, it's just a little loop. It's just a circle, not a not a horseshoe. And they're all literally the same. Like that just is so useless. <laughs> like one of the problems of us talking about hatred of democracy and then saying like democracy is messy but needs to be defended anyway is then that can come off to a liberal mind as like we're defending like the concept of like American democracy when American democracy is profoundly undemocratic Mm -hmm. and it's like very much not actually Mm -hmm. democratic 
we're not trying to say that like electoral politics and this endlessly like moneyed system, two-party system is at all what we're talking about, even with democracy. I think a, a much better example to think about, you know, recently Cuba did their referendum on like family law, this dramatic referendum. The majority of the country like participated in like writing up this law and it was voted in by like 67% of people. And like the only way it's reported on by most US media, anything but like leftist media basically, is that like Cuba finally legalized gay marriage and like finally legalized gay adoption it's actually so much more intensely radical than that in a way that like america just can't conceive of within our like awful rights framework because it actually dramatically redefined family to like anyone that loves and cares for each other it's a very fundamentally different paradigm shift that in no way can be compared to like the extremely assimilationist and depressing gains of gay marriage in the U.S. <laughs> and that it's also portrayed as like Cuba is split on whether gay marriage should be legalized. And it's like, no, 67% of people voted on something that they had actual input on which is so much more than we like ever get in the u.s mm -hmm. and they had like actual input into it mm -hmm. it wasn't just like oh they're voting for like <laughs> like lesser evil that is like despised and like that's not to say that the cuban referendum is perfect but it is certainly like a step forward in family law a step toward what i would say is abolishing the family even though you know that's that's certainly not the language as we know it as a legal structure. Anyway, sorry for my pro-contemporary Cuban tangent. I just think when we get into the pro-democracy argument, there's always the chance that liberals who are listening to the show are going to be like, oh my God, you're supporting us, you know, like, <laughs> no, fuck your electoral <laughs> politics. Like, we're not fucking talking about you. Shut the yeah. fuck up. Liberals, this is not for like, you. <laughs> this is not for you. <laughs> yeah. Like... Yeah. Yeah, we want to be very so. clear. Yeah, we're we're, we're very staunchly anti-fascist. We're very very staunchly <laughs> anti-liberal. <laughs> okay. 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 So, hatred of democracy is integral to democracy because it is a term of abuse, but it's also an ideal. This creates a double valence. And so I quote this double valence between insult and ideal is embedded in the Greek word demos, one of the three terms that from earliest classical antiquity belonged exclusively to the vocabulary of politics. The word demos designated the body of citizens constituting the polis, but also, conversely, those excluded from the rights of the polis, the multitude, rabble, or crowd. What democratic political discourse calls the people thus has simultaneously positive and negative connotations depending on the context. The people as sovereign, the unquestionable authority of the American people invoked so often in political oratory versus the common people as rabble or what was once known in Britain as the great unwashed. So even those who claim to speak in the name of democracy or the coastal elites like hate what they refer to as middle America, like hate the fact that those people also get a get a voice. But then like middle Americans hate the coastal elite. So everyone like both loves and hates it and we can think about politicians or like especially the academic elite who like seem to hate everyone like <laughs> academics love knowledge they love all these 
big values, but they actually hate the idea that there are people out there. <laughs> Absolutely. I love the comparison between like this hatred of democracy, even as we perform this idea of having these values while fundamentally misunderstanding the mess of the thing that we are valuing, right? So like today we want so much from sex as if we believed that economic inequalities and their social consequences could somehow be remedied or compensated by achieving equality between sexual partners, equality between genders, or the equal distribution of pleasure and erotic experience. Like, equal orgasms for equal pain. <laughs> um, our culture has massively overburdened sexual intercourse with expectation and fright frighted it with significance, including political significance. Beyond failing to yield the positive good of complete pleasure, sex yields a distinctly negative outcome by exacerbating social inequalities, especially those of gender, race, class, and nation. The radical feminist claims that heterosexual intercourse magnifies and consolidates women's subordination, has been absorbed by liberal democracies to the extent that we now, almost automatically, affirm sex as a theater of equality. One sees evidence of the shift in the college classroom where students routinely speak about sex as if the principal point of having it were to perform equality, as if pleasure, lust, or anything less salutary were then equality of personhood and mutual acknowledgement were wholly incidental, a proving ground for autonomy, liberation, and egalitarianism. Sex has become an arena for validating our modern political ideals. Yeah, so Jesus Christ, what a problem. <laughs> God, it's so true. I feel like that really is as far as like some of the feminist imagination for like sex liberation can go to. Like sex is so bad. <laughs> and then there's like, it's like you're still centering the orgasm and you're still like, oh God. Okay. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> oh my God. I'm gonna have to cut this out. But just like the... Just like stop while you're ahead sometimes. <laughs> the pleasure of this being over greater than any pleasure you could possibly give me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Um, okay, so so far from deforming democracy, the hatred of democracy is constitutive of the democracy. And this tension is not a problem to be solved, but it is the exact experiment of democracy itself so then we get this relationship between like people as rabble and people as a possibility for a multitude so it's that rebellious nature it's that riskiness and the messiness of it that makes it so pleasurable and exciting and this is like they mobilize this question so like what then do we do with the rabble they think of it as a, a multitude that risks falling into a mass and you made a distinction between democratic practice or like a democracy versus a republic and how the United States were this republic. <laughs> so it's a mass versus a multitude. I'm also thinking about like hatred of democracy ends up like mobilizing it. Like I'm thinking of American influence on outside nations, like all of the terrible shit that we do to other countries in the name of democracy, in the name of preserving democracy, which is actually like we end up thwarting democratic possibilities in other places because we're... And installing military dictatorships. <laughs> yep. Yeah. In the name of democracy, like our democracy, but we hate the other democracies, but our democracy isn't really a democracy. So, and I love this quote. 
so they get this notion of the multitude from Spinoza, which is a really strange place. And I, I know a lot of people that just like really love Spinoza, and I got to give them a chance now, I guess. For Spinoza, the multitudo indicates a plurality, which persists as such in the public scene, in collective action, in the handling of communal affairs, without converging into a one, without evaporating within a centripetal form of motion. Multitude is the form of social and political existence for the many, seen as being many. So it's this opening of possibilities through a plural diversity, but understood also as a whole. A whole. We love holes. <laughs> this is a whole friendly and positive podcast. It's a whole thing about holes. Immediately one grasps how the United States, with its founding motto of E Pluribus Unum, constituted itself in opposition to Spinoza's multitudo. The talos of a nation tends always to converge into a one, and the more heterogeneous its population, the more forceful its centripetal motion. By contrast with the people as a coherent political entity capable of self-governing sovereignty, the multitude appears as an underdog concept, one that is now having its day in the sun. Extrapolating from Hobbes's antagonism to the distinctive picture of the polis described above, Verino argues that in the multitude's centrifugal effects lies the source of its distinctive power. So the opposing relationship between centripetal motion, which like forces everything to collapse into itself, into this hegemonic structure, there's the centrifugal effects that allows things to disseminate and to be messy and complicated. And it's this push and pull that they're grasping and that they want to linger in. And so... That is this mobilization of the double meaning of Deimos and the mobilization of Ranciere's notion of hatred of democracy and contempt for itself that they then will apply to their larger project. <laughs> the idea of, you know, the petite mort, the small death of orgasm as being this safe form of unbinding. So I think in the same way that a lot of like liberal feminism, like the, the most we can imagine out of sex liberation is equal orgasms for equal pay. The most that like liberalism can imagine as far as inspiration or disorder is the kind of inspiration of the political figure that we like kind of all throw ourselves behind, right? Being at the rally and then being caught up kind of in that like identitarian hold of being part of something bigger that's almost the petite mort the small death whereas actual like sexual liberation of like taking desire mm -hmm. to its heights is much closer to the destabilizing effect of actual disorder like things that actually challenge just like you know destabilizing sex can like challenge the structure of the self destabilizing revolution can challenge the structure of the actual society. It goes outside desire, like overcomes it and brings it to something else. And what's scary about that is that can go into different directions, right? It can go into the direction of new possibilities, new, new liberation, and it can also go into the scarier, much scarier uh, direction of, of fascism. We want very precise definitions of harm, of abuse, of pleasure, of appropriate sex, of the right kind of sex. So even queer theorists want a queer sex. They want to have the appropriately queer kind of sex all the time. <laughs> so basically there's this idea that sex is so difficult to talk about because it is foundationally this messy 
thing that opens us up to ambiguity in a way that is like really not neat, not able to put into these these really even boxes that we want to subsume it into other things, right? So in neoliberal, you know, discourse, that means we want, on, and even in queer theory, we want to subsume sex into cultural mm-hmm. identity and race and these things that have this stable idea that we can talk about them as these like coherent things. And then when we actually talk about sex itself, the way that we want to talk about it is basically in terms of violation. Like, like what does it mean to be violated? But um, when it comes to the actual complexity of desire and wanting things, that thought of like really confronting how desire works is so counter to the way that we want Mm -hmm. to conceptualize ourselves as these beings in a broader you know moral society that we would rather just put them into identities and into violation instead so to quote the text um, the political and conceptual categories devised to think about sex paradoxically have fostered its eclipse from intellectual consciousness One might say the birth of queer privileged the death of sex. Making sex an academic subject entailed cleansing it of deplorable elements. In order to enter the university, sex needed to become at least semi-respectable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and like even a little bit, little bit earlier, hatred of sex is not explained by misogyny, misandry, homophobia, transphobia, or biphobia, though certainly it may manifest itself in those persistent bigotries. Part of this radical claim is that our natural disdain towards the structure of sex and how we like construct ourselves is apart from all of these like larger structural bigotries that they that they cannot be merely reduced down to those things so while they are using this neo-freudian approach and (laughs) there's always um this like figure of foucault in the background and they even name him in some of his interviews he like, of course, the history of sexuality is all about pleasure, but in many of his interviews, he gives a much more fluid notion or we really get to the heart of how he isn't trying to, like, he gives us the foundation for queer theory, but he's not trying to give us a hegemonic account of it. And he's trying to have a very open, messy understanding of pleasure. And so I have this I think, nice quote that I pulled from an interview that was published under the title, The Gay Science. So maybe it'll be helpful. So Foucault says, in treating pleasure ultimately as nothing other than an event, an event that happens, that happens, I would say, outside the subject or at the limit of the subject or between two subjects in this something that is neither of the body nor of the soul, neither outside nor inside, don't we have here in trying to reflect a bit on this notion of pleasure, a means of avoiding the entire psychological and medical armature that was built into the traditional notion of desire. How do you talk about something that you, that needs to be open-ended when all of the mechanisms that we, like the tools, is just trying to like capture it and subsume it? And that's why we hate it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I mean, some of the ways that they talk about this is, is just so um, fantastic. This quote, 
Hatred is the ego's automatic response to whatever challenges its centripetal dominance of psychic life, including disturbances emanating from that very body on whose form the ego is modeled. Those polymorphously perverse pleasures associated with the body of childhood exercise, a virtually irresistible centrifugal tug on this centripetal <laughs> centripetally organized yet nonetheless fragile ego or self in this vision of selfhood as a kind of psychic armor or prophylaxis against sexuality we glimpse the human ego exposed as something like an overworn condom <laughs> that there's something fundamental about sexuality about desire that it challenges the ego it stretches out the ego and then you know the ego is used as this buffer against the danger and the fear and the hatred of sex yeah there's a certain horror to it and then we deal with this in all different types of ways right we talk about sex and euphemisms we we don't confront sex directly appealing to eros initiates preliminary steps along the well-trodden path leading to hatred of sex and then you also have how like lots of ways that sex is conceived by even those who really want, uh, like, you know, we would see as having high sex drives and like being, um, or high libidos and being like very driven by sex, that partially like having a lot of sex can be a way of distancing yourself from the actual vulnerability and danger of sex. So the human ego with its myriad defenses against disordering is what hates sex once it reaches maximal intensity. Our culture's penchant for regarding sexual activity as an ego-enhancing pursuit when it is treated as a conquest or as notches on the belt overlooks the extent to which sexual intensity also is capable of denuding the ego. Viewing sexual experience as a conquest of the other entails strenuous denials of how sex, its unbinding intensity, threatens to conquer me so basically to <laughs> in, to deny the way that sex can be a conquering of self a disruption and this thing that overcomes us and like the very essence of who we are instead we you know like try to put sex into the box of like of conquest or ego so as to try to make it more safe for us mm -hmm. The sanitization. So I love the metaphor of it, the used condom of the ego because it does feel like in order to talk about sex, you have to like put on a rubber gown and like gloves and make it as unsexy as possible. But then that like creates a whole mystique. I feel so stupid today. I don't know why. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> they compare the hatred of sex to the hatred of democracy by saying that like at the root of Rancière's claim or at the root of Rancière's work on the hatred of democracy is the claim or the idea that the hatred itself is the condition for democracy so the necessary rupture the necessary like coming apart is what allows for a coming together like a constant binding and unbinding between these forces that are always opposed so these centripetal forces that bind and then centrifugal forces that unbind it's those opposing forces and it's the constant influx and the building and the unbuilding 
that motivate our hatred of sex because it's always something that's elusive, but then it's always something that is at the same time foundational and unthinkable to think about our life without it. For someone to be have a critique of democracy is like somehow kind of unthinkable, like democracy is so foundational. But then again, like it is the most precarious, like the most strange, the most disagreeable when you think about it, like form of organization, form of government, like this idea that everything is, but it is like elusive and desirable yeah Mm -hmm. what is so striking to them about Ranciere's notion of the hatred of democracy is its unique capacity to bring out the rabble in people and they use that term rabble so that it dismantles itself while then also instantiating itself like as a people as a group yeah well and that like the hatred of democracy specifically brings up the example of trump you know because like that this this was written during the time of when trump was still in office and so like said these are in other terms the deplorables whose unbound energy has been mobilized politically by positing a common enemy in comparatively close proximity whether inside the borders of the continental united states or threatening to overrun its borders. This helps to explain why immigration, in a nation founded on it, nonetheless remains such an inflammatory issue and so dangerously divisive in our globalized multicultural world, where people of all races, ethnicities, and creeds need to live side by side without permanent borders. Libidinal binding, by creating what we might call fake borders, divides the demos against itself. In this idea of like this need to like guard guard the ego against the overcoming like guard identity it brings out like the worst possible things (laughs) basically the worst possible impulses so the rationale for and result of binding at the level of subjectivity is identity today identities are what bind us to ourselves and in doing so serve as the primary bulwark against unbinding and hence against sexuality in the psychoanalytic sense. Identities are binding. They forge coherence out of disorder and alterity. By dividing me from not me, identities are also exclusionary. Build the wall remains the implicit motto of every identity formation. Further identities are misleading because they conceal from me my own incoherence, my constitutive dividedness, and those aspects of me which I cannot readily identify or sympathize. Rather than expression of diversity, identities betoken the repression of diversity. So rather than, you know, live in the muck and the mess, the cyborg complexity of of all the, the fluids and connections instead, We build walls in order to protect ourselves from that complexity, from Mm -hmm. vulnerability, from that potentiality of the constructions of the self and the constructions of community, the constructions of identity to be challenged. Yeah, we build walls and we plant flags. (laughs) Jordan Peterson. edit his name off. He's not allowed on the pod. Yeah, no, he's literally the, the name that must not be named. He's just not hot. He's not hot. Get hotter, and then maybe we'll consider it. (laughs) Do some really, like, release the sex tape, Jordan Peterson. Leak the tape. Ew. (laughs) (laughs) Create the opposite of pornography. The opposite of pornography is just a sex tape of Jordan Peterson. (laughs) I love that. That's so incredible. 
the antithesis. Um, oh my god, I just, I, I just can't, I just can't. It's like the ring, but it's just his sex tape. <laughs> you watch it for seven days, and that is his daughter is like the carnivore diet influencer. <laughs> Do you know about this? That she just like eat all meat, drink all beef water. Um, yeah. so good yeah and that he like lit in like jordan peterson literally like had a psychotic break and like <laughs> took him to russia <laughs> because because of the all meat diet. diet it's so good oh, i was trying to talk a friend into having a party a jordan peterson themed party like a beef and benzo party where we just like do a lot of benzos and just eat steak aurora stop <laughs> You're poisoning the culture. Uh, and they wouldn't, they didn't accept it. They wouldn't, I couldn't get any takers. Okay. <laughs> so mad at you. <laughs> Don't be lying. No, I'm not actually mad at you. <laughs> I mean, it kind of sounds fun. It sounds really fun just to do a ton of downers and then just try to eat like a big steak. Um, I don't know. It could be cool. <laughs> It could but I was be like, super hot and cool. You never know. You don't know. <laughs> like, I thought it would be really cool. William James wrote this essay about the practical effects of nitrous oxide, like, as a, like, as an empiricist, as a radical empiricist. And so he just got really, really high on nitrous and tried to write about it. And I thought it would be fun to do nitrous while reading the essay. And I, like, got a lot of people to think about it. And, like, I was just, people, like, got really amped about it. And so I, like, ordered all this nitrous off of Amazon. And now I have, like, a ton of nitrous in my apartment. And no one will do it with me. You told me about that. I'm yeah. excited. I mean, we got to get people to, like, want to do it. So I kind of, like, yeah, invested <laughs> all this, like, and not, not all this money, but just, like, it's, like, 50 bucks worth of nitrous. Maybe a little more. Like, nitrous is expensive. And now it's just here. I've learned, like, I got to get, like, um, RSVP and, like, maybe, like, like down payments so for the beef and benzo party. Okay. <laughs> ready ready for some confessions? Yes, the confession time. Do you want to start us off? Absolutely. Okay. This one speaks to my soul. I had hospital sex when I w was admitted for a week. I hope that meant they had a week worth of hospital sex. Like, not just one hospital sex, but seven hospital sex. At least seven. <laughs> you can have more than seven in a week. Um, yeah. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds nice. I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy for you. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah, except for, like, more hospital sex. Um, more mm -hmm. than seven. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the the higher level of hospital sex, the more harmony in the world. I think I think that's true. Bring pleasure mm -hmm. to sickness, you know. Okay. Um second one. Mm -hmm. I think I'm in love with my lifelong best friend, but I know she doesn't feel the same. Yeah, that's really sad and hard. Um Aww. and also I think a very common life experience um so you're not alone one of like the great human tales mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, truly unrequited love so confession number three 
I once had sex on the altar of a church before the service when there was no one there. A lot of great sexual encounters happening in our confessions this week. I know. Yeah, I'm jealous of this one. This is great. This is iconic. Iconic. We encourage this sort of behavior from our congregation. More church sex, more hospital sex. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. My sadistic thoughts have reached a new high bar, but I'm having trouble embracing them. I think that that's um, very common. I I think that because of the way we conceptualize desires along along the lines of like victim and predator, it's much easier to embrace the desire to be the victim than it is to be the desire to to you know like or to like play the predator. And uh, yeah, but uh, also like find someone willing, and I hope you can find someone who will enjoy those impulses. And that you will both take full advantage of both your interlocking desires. Mm-hmm. Ideally in a hospital or on an altar of a church. <laughs> That's right. Those would be <laughs> only two locations in which we will accept. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, this is confession number four. Another great sex one. I, I got all the horny ones this week. Um, <laughs> was this intentional? <laughs> Congratulations, Aurora. Congratulations. Um, the first time I had sex with a fellow trans woman, I eagerly let her bear back me. Yeah, sounds sounds hot. Yeah. We'll be talking more about Tim Dean and barebacking in the future, but yeah, sounds wonderful as long as yeah, everyone's getting tested and everyone's, yeah, sounds wonderful. As long as everyone is like fully aware of whether people are getting tested or not, you know, we all make... Uh, Risk assessment, yeah. Risk assessments, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, the cool thing about being a human is is having agency. I love that for us. Okay, final one. Have a huge crush on a guy who is cheating on his shitty boyfriend with two other people. (laughs) Of course you have the one about infidelity this week. Of course I have all the horny ones. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah okay Aurora, like brag i literally wrote okay. these out so maybe i was just being nice to you <laughs> um yeah i mean this i think it's this is fine you know like um yeah this dude sounds like probably like shitty um Is it as shitty as his shitty uh, bf who's shittier <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so exactly like relationships, right? I don't know. You do you. You're allowed to have a crush on whoever you want to have a crush on. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. we're gonna police police crushes. Fire yeah, him for having. A yeah, crush for sure. Like you can fire the fire the crush person. Fire the person that's cheating on their partner. That's right. That's right. <laughs> like jobs should police. <laughs> Oh my god, my my um, Instagram comments have been a mess. <laughs> but when are they not? Um, that's true. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you would like to help continue to make this show possible, you can sign up at www. 
dot patreon.com slash drunk church right now all level tiers have the same benefits but obviously uh, signing up at a higher level tier supports us more which we love and you get access to exclusive writings and bonus episodes Mm -hmm. and also it supports all of the work that we do to make these episodes happen which is a lot of research and work it's a labor of love but it is a labor nonetheless (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. A literal labor. Yeah, and everyone that is already signed up for our Patreon, we are so grateful to all of you. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much, and have a lovely rest of your week. Mm -hmm. Godspeed and God bless. Bless you for being an angel. Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you for building a new dream Just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly 